best offense, the best defense. And we got the terrible time. Firing open man. There it is. Touchdown to Johnny Stallworth. The Steelers are on the board. Inside handoff to Harris on a cross buck right to left. He goes into the end zone for the touchdown. Handoff is to Rocky. Rocky driving through people. He's down into the end zone. Touchdown, Pittsburgh. Here's Bradshaw giving the Franco cut over the left side of the line. He's into the end zone for a touchdown. Bradshaw backpedals. He looks. There comes his man, Eddie. Fire 50 down at the 15. Lynn Paul will go for a touchdown. Well, Blood scoops it up. He doesn't hold it. Now it's picked up. Down the floor. Lambert goes with it. That rolls the ball off. The ball is being carried for a touchdown by J.T. Thomas. And there's a collision. That's cut out of the air. The ball is pulled in by Franco Harris. Welcome to the Steelers Decade Series, looking back on great Steelers teams one decade at a time. When you want to talk about that 70s dynasty, man, you sit up, you get respect, <laughs> you pay homage. Here's your host, Stan Sabrin. Hello and welcome to all in Steelers Nation. I'm Stan Sabrin of the Steelers Radio Network. I am joined by Dale Lally and Mike Brazuda from the Steelers Radio Network, WDVE and SNR as well. Guys, welcome. We're going to begin our conversation talking about the dynasty years, the 1970s. There is a perception um, that Steeler football began the day they drafted Joe Green. That's not true. Uh, There were a number of years before that, uh, more than 30, unsuccessful. But I thought when we talk about the, the 1970s, the foundation was actually laid for this. Uh, in the late 1960s, two major events, uh, the first one leading to the second one, and that is Art Rooney, the chief, uh, the patriarch of Pittsburgh sports, turned the reins over to his son, Dan. And Dan brought a, while still adhering to the Rooney way, if you will, he created a new way. He was more businesslike and understood you know, the business. I mean, the chief, God love him. You know, his his buddies were making draft picks, and so was he, and that sort of thing. And I just thought, thought we'd start off by saying that maybe the first major move on the chessboard was having Dan Rooney take over. Well, and Stan, let's set the stage for that as well. And, and I'm going to go back to the 1965 NFL draft. The Steelers traded uh, in 1964 their first-round draft pick the next year to the Chicago Bears for a couple of, yeah, okay, veterans. Was that the Scott Appleton deal? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the Bears then, uh, the Steelers wind up with what would have been the third overall pick in that draft in 1965. And they had they, they were doing this throughout the 60s. They would trade future picks for veteran guys because Buddy Parker didn't like young guys, didn't trust the rookies. So in 65, the Bears take with the third pick that they re- acquired from the Steelers, Dick Butkus. Mm. With the next pick, the Bears take Gale Sayers. Uh, the picks after that, uh, the next pick after that was Craig Morton. Joe Namath went with the 12th pick in that round, in, in the first round that year. So I, I really think Dan Rooney's looking at this and going, we got to stop doing this. We got to stop giving away these picks for these so so veterans that they're, they're, they're done. They've, they've been used up somewhere else. And so it's time to start acquiring and keeping these picks ourselves and making and then turning those guys into players. So it was the stage was set there for everything that Dan did with the, with what happened in the 60s. Hey, we can't trade away picks anymore. We got to keep them. Yeah, not only keep them guys, but shortly after that, they got Bill Nunn involved front and center, and then they not only kept their draft picks, they started finding some pretty good players, some Hall of Famers, and that really took off in the 70s like a jet plane. But uh, it started a little bit before that, and uh, the rest, as we like to say around here, 
is history in that. Yeah, that's you know, it's still to this day they believe in building through the draft, uh, yeah. and you know they've they, they've adhered to that until they, they traded for Devin Bush, uh, you know, or traded away a first round pick for Minka Fitzpatrick and, and traded up for Devin Bush. Those were two completely out of character moves in back to back years for Pull the Steelers. Them all, Lou. Uh, they yeah. Every once in a while, you'd see a trade up. Yeah. But to do that in back to back years to make that big move like that, uh, where you, the, the, when they traded away the first round draft pick for Minka Fitzpatrick, that was the first time they had done that since the '60s, uh, since those days of 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 you know, hey, give away the draft picks every year for a player. And I remember I, I asked uh, Art Rooney II about that. You know, was that a tough decision for him? He said, well, there was, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, pacing and stuff because it went completely against what his father had done all those years. That was, the, you know, the, the, looking back at the 60s, they didn't want to do that anymore. They didn't want to give away picks for players. Well, we're going to talk about some of the players they drafted in a bit. Um, but, again, putting Dan in charge and then ultimately – he was in charge of finding a replacement uh, to be the head coach in 1969. And this, guys, this is a question that probably doesn't have an answer, but knowing the impact that Chuck Knoll had, would any of this have happened if it had been any other, not only coach, but person? And I think those are two separate issues I'm, I'm bringing up here, other than Chuck Knoll. I mean, well, I don't have a definitive answer. Yeah, I, because I, I don't all know. we know yeah. is what happened. But we also know not only about Chuck Knoll, the coach, but what Chuck Knoll demanded out of the organization, and everybody ended. And it was a leap of faith. Yeah. Uh, you know, Chuck hadn't been a head coach before. Uh, you know, he had coached under a lot of great head coaches: Sid Gilman, Don Shula. Yeah, um, and of course, played for a great one as well. So, you know, I, a lot of times when you get a, a, an assistant coach. And this has been proven time and again with the with the Patriots. Um, they want to come in and be just like the guy that they were coaching under and try to emulate that. Chuck didn't do that. Chuck came in and he was himself. Maybe he took pieces, bits and pieces from sure. what the other guys did, which is what you do. But he was still his own man. And you know, I think so many times, you know, you see guys who who played under Lombardi or coached under Lombardi or played under Belichick and coached under Belichick, and it doesn't work out because they think they have to do things that way, the same way as the mentor, because that's what works. Well, players see through that too, and I think that's what made Noel successful is that what he was his own man. Um, you know, there wasn't anything fake about Chuck Noel. You know, he he was pretty much uh, you know a straight shooter with that kind of stuff. And, and, and he had his own personality, and, and the players understood it. it. He wasn't trying to be a, a tough guy just faking it. He was a pretty – he was a strict guy. Uh, he wasn't trying to be, you know, an intellectual and in faking it. He was an intellectual. Um, you know, he could talk to players on any level, and I think that that showed through. And, you know, confident enough that they interviewed him shortly after the Colts lost to the Jets in Super Bowl three, which was one of the great debacles in NFL history – you know, the upstart AFL finally beating the NFL, which considered itself superior and considered the AFL a joke of a league. I think that and, actually uh, interview, actually the first interview actually took place in Miami. Yeah. Yeah. That and, weekend. And, you know, that was not an easy thing for Don Shula and Chuck Knoll and all the Colts. It was, it was horrific. And uh, I remember Dan Rooney uh, referencing that over the years that how, how composed Knoll was and how, how he remained confident in how to, do his job. You know, there at that time, unfortunately, I was of an age where I was big time into it at that point. <laughs> but there was this thought that in order to win in the NFL, you had to be like Vince Lombardi. 
I mean, because he you know was so dominant with the Packers and their yeah. dynasty. There was a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and, but everybody thought, well, I got a coach like that. Well, it doesn't. Players have a way of seeing through yeah. that. If you're faking it, they'll see through it. I mean, Absolutely. you got to be genuine, and, and that's what Noel was 100 um, percent of the time. I mean, it would have been easy for him, you know, to 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 coach like Paul Brown or coach like any of you know, Sid Gilm or, or Don Shula. That wasn't what he did. He coached like Chuck Noll, and, and you know, I, I think he was he, also on the Chargers staff with Al Davis. So that, right, yeah. that might have given an idea what not to do. <laughs> but but you know, you look at it, and I, you know, you've talked to different guys about that that first team meeting uh, that they had, where he he brought everybody in together. He says, "Hey, look, most of you aren't going to be here when yep. we uh, when we're actually going to be good." Um, that that had to be a real kick in the teeth for you know these guys who have been playing here for you know five or six years, and he said. What do you mean we're not going to be playing here when, when we're when we're good? We've been here. Who are you? You know what? What are your bona fides? Now, the best thing about that was, and I've talked to rest is in peace Ray Mansfield and, and Andy Russell because they were there when yeah. that happened. And you're right; it was the first meeting. I mean, he he came in and let him know exactly what was about to happen. And then one of the first things he does is get rid of his most productive wide receiver, Roy Jefferson, and Everybody knew that there was going to be a new sheriff in town. Yeah, and where did it all end up? I mean, from that kind of beginning, uh, the the historic decade ended and resonated to such a degree. I'm sure you guys know the old joke that used to be told in these parts between the fourth Super Bowl and the fifth Super Bowl because, you know, it took a little while. People used to say, how many Steelers fans does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer was four. One to change the light bulb. And three to talk about how great the seventies were, yeah. <laughs> or the or how how great the old light bulb was. You know? um, yeah, right. Yeah, that's that's you know, um, no question. Uh, Chuck, um, talking to players, um, he he immediately commanded their respect, uh, and he, they found themselves living life lessons that he taught them. Uh, I will say this, and I've been doing this for uh, a couple of years now. Um, I always, and I, I commiserated with some former players. And whenever I would interview Chuck Knoll, my first thought was not what I was going to ask him. My first thought in the back of my mind was, just don't say anything stupid. Just, just, <laughs> please, just to myself, please, just because he, he was intimidating. I mean, you know, he'd have a smile on his face, but he was not a guy to be trifled with. Right. I mean, he, he, he didn't tolerate fools very well. And he had what I would always call the icy blue stare. If he asked a question that he thought was beneath him, stupid, he would glare at you with those blue eyes and uh, give you the icy blue stare. And you knew that you were, it was like a deer in headlights. You were walking boy. on the ice. I'm telling you, your entrails started started freezing. He had that effect on you. And I've had players, when they would talk to him or he would address them, they felt the same way. Just don't say anything too stupid. Yeah, and, and great coaches have that. It's I, I don't know how you describe it. I don't know what it is, but it's that persona. It's that... They're they're able to exude that that confidence and that kind of, I don't want to call it arrogance because it wasn't it's it's not necessarily arrogance but it's, you know, just a confidence in hey I know what I'm doing here you know this, this is you know I've I've shown that I know what I'm doing here, 
Am I going to answer that question? I, I know the answer to that question, but I may not answer it. You know, it, it, so you see it with a lot of uh, great coaches. But yeah, Noel had that, he had that uh, persona, it's, it's, you know. Again, there's a reason why uh, Cope called him the emperor. The emperor. I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> Mike, did, early Stan, in your Stan, career, don't, did you have oh, a chance to just, deal with him? I, co- I was just going to say, I covered his last five years, ah. and it, w- it was my second job full-time, and I was pretty fresh out of college, and I used to think the same thing. I was walking in like, just don't look like an idiot. Don't have this guy <laughs> say something that belittles you in front of this whole room because nobody knows who you are yet. And you're unproven. He was terrifying, uh, intimidating. Uh, there, there was an aura about him, and I, I don't think that was because I was a young reporter who had grown up a Steeler fan. I think that was because he was just that way. He could give you that look. And those eyes would would just drill a hole in you. Oh boy, oh boy! It's you know it's 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 not like you know Bill Cower would snap at you, right? And Tomlin on occasion, but Chuck didn't do that. Um, uh, I'll never just a couple things if you don't mind. Um, in, in that line, in 1986, Scott Campbell was the third string quarterback, and in the middle of the season, the Steelers cut him. Now in Pittsburgh at that time. That was not only the lead story in sports on TV. It was the lead story in every TV newscast. So I was at Channel 4 then. They sent me down to interview Chuck Knoll about cutting Scott Campbell. And, you know, in those days, you know, you went to Joe Gordon and say, hey, can I talk to Chuck for a minute? And, you know, generally they were available. It wasn't, uh, you know, you didn't have to make an appointment. You're going to go see the Pope or anything, although that was his nickname, the Pope. And, and I asked him about Scott Campbell, and I was asking some follow-up questions. And after about a couple, you know, I was trying to backdoor him a little bit, you know, and I didn't get the answer that I wanted. And then he stopped and he said, do you want a debate? <laughs> End of interview. No, sir. That's, do you want it? No. I, I, I prefer not to debate you on anything. Just a couple more things. Uh, when I first got to Pittsburgh, which is 1976, I was at Three Rivers Stadium, and it was late in the afternoon. I was going to interview somebody. I was on radio then. This very uh, same station I'm at now shows you my career's gone nowhere in 50 years. But anyway, um, I was walking back to that coffee room, a okay, little, yeah. cafe, little, little, little luncheonette. Little place, lunch room that they had back in the back. Little lunch room back in the back. In the back. Um, and, and I was walking down the hallway, and... I walked in to get, grab a cup of coffee, and there was Chuck Knoll sitting there. And I thought, oh, no, what? I have nothing to say. I have nothing of any import to say. Um, and, you know, you don't know what to talk about him. So, Been there. You know, yeah, right. I mean, you, don't, you, know, you, 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 know, you, knew, you knew something about everything. Yeah. You know a lot about everything. And it turns out, and I'd only been there like a month I mean, in Pittsburgh. And uh, I, I uh, coach, and he – Addressed me by name. That was a shock. And he said, um, so what part of Cleveland did you grow up in? And I had no idea that I had no idea that he even knew who I was, let alone that I. And so we, it turns out that we talked about Cleveland. Um, and it because t- that's where he grew up. That's where he grew up. Yeah. It turns out we were actually born in the same hospital. So we talked about that and wonder where I grew up and so on and so forth. But you always got the impression he talked to you about anything, and he knew something. But if you mentioned football, the window shades would come down in his eyes, and right. that was the end of the conversation. And one other thing, and it's, it, I think it's the proudest moment of my entire career. Um, back in the day when I was still at Channel 4, they had 
ABC Monday Night Football. And the Steelers were going to be on Monday Night Football. And the station wanted to do an hour special, 8 until 9. And they wanted me to do a sit-down interview with Chuck Knoll, who didn't do that. You know, he was available on the press conference and post-game. That was about it. And so the station asked Joe Gordon, got back to me, said, well, Chuck will do it, but only if Stan does the interview. Uh, just kill me now. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> that, that was fine. It would have been fine with me. Yeah, he was that kind of guy. I mean, you mentioned the the uh, the ability to talk about any subject at length. Um, that's not every football coach. No. Uh, there are a lot of football coaches that I've dealt with over the years, uh, whether it be high school, college, whatever, that that's all I know is football. And if you ask them who the president, you know, who's the, who's the vice president right now, they couldn't tell you. Whereas Noel could probably tell you, probably give you the list of every vice president that's, you know, the, the United States has had. And he'd debate you. He'd debate you in <laughs> politics, too. Yeah. If you, if you got into that, he would, he would debate you about politics. Yeah, he was, he was unique. And uh, Dale's point about him being the anti-coach is really well taken. You know, there were no stories about him staying in his office and sleeping on a cot. And all of his assistants <laughs> – no, nah, but, I mean, all of his assistants really appreciated that. I got to know a few of them over the years, George Perlis and, and Dick Hoke. Yeah. And they always talked about how you could actually have a life and a family and still be a coach for the Steelers and still win the Super Bowl because – uh, I think Noel knew that there was a point where if you didn't get your work done in a certain amount of time, it wasn't going to happen. So, you know, uh, staying up all night wasn't going to do anybody any good. And uh, uh, like most things, it was uh, the right call. Those guys really appreciated the way he treated them and, uh, you know, the, the respect and loyalty he showed them, and they gave it back as much as they could. And the players, years later, still speaking glowing terms about what he meant to their personal life. He was a father life. figure. Yeah, he was. He was. He was a renaissance man. Yeah. He was a father figure. Um, you know, we, we always joke about get on with your life's work. He, he really believed in that. A lot of, you know, a lot of players come in, they're 23. At that time, relatively speaking, they're making a lot of money. They think they're going to be set for life. Wasn't that much money, actually, in those days. But they thought, you know, I'll, I'll play football till I'm 90. Right. And he said, you know, you're not. You might not even be playing football next week <laughs> <laughs> if you're not careful. He was, um, uh, he, he just set the tone. Um, and, and so then, so the, the foundation of the dynasty, no franchise ever is successful unless the people who are above the players are successful. People ask me all the time why the Steelers are continually successful. Look at the top, and it filters on down, certainly with Dan Rooney. The, the last thing, all you need to know about that organization is that both Chuck and Dan were private pilots. Chuck sold Dan his plane. He was the coach. He sold his private plane to the owner. It's supposed to be the other way around, but that's, that tells you something about Chuck Knoll. So the foundation is there. Now the actual work has to begin. And when we return, we're going to talk about some of the players and the games that made the 70s what they were, the impact not only to win Super Bowls, but the impact on the community. Steelers Nation, you listening out there. And clearly they were successful, but it transcended just winning championships. Uh, just in general, guys, any team that wins four championships in six years, I don't care if you're playing 
miniature golf or tiddlywinks, <laughs> you're going to be immensely popular. Uh, or immensely hated. Or immensely hated. <laughs> we're, we're talking to Steelers Nation, so it's a it's a one-sided conversation here. Maybe someone's out there, you know, jealous of what, what they accomplished. Um, I, I don't know that we'll ever see my, that again. Um, but it seems to me that there were two factors here, that during those years, the region, not just the city of Pittsburgh, the entire region um, was going through great economic distress. The steel mills were closing or had closed. People were out of work. Uh, generations of steel workers and, and people who dug coal out of the earth um, for the first time, generations, were, were their, their livelihood was taken away from them. And it was a hard time economically. The city, of course, did a great job in transitioning, but at that point they had not. And having that football, and I've had people tell me this, we're going through tough times, but it gave them a great deal of solace to say, yeah, maybe tough times, but we got the best damn football team in the world. It was a vicarious reinforcement of who they were, what they wanted to be, and secondarily, and I jump in on this, it wasn't only that they won. It was the way they won. It had Pittsburgh written all gritty over and it. Tough. Gritty yeah. and tough. And, you know, we're, we, you know we'll, we'll stand our ground. We'll smash if we have to. And I, I do think that that further ingratiated the team to the region. And I've had players tell me that they sense that, too. Yeah, there's no doubt about that, Stan. I mean, if you think about the the player who personifies those teams to a lot of Steeler fans, it's Jack Lambert. Jack Lambert. And, you know, to me, Lambert's a great player. There's there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But if I were picking uh, uh, the better player, I would take Jack Ham. But Lambert was everything that Steeler fans loved about those teams. Joe Green was everything that Steeler fans loved about those teams. Tough and nasty and just had that persona that you better not mess with us. Uh, you know, <laughs> we're, we're going to kick your butt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so those guys really kind of led the way on that whole thing. And, and you know, I, to your point, um, you know, a lot of people moved away from Pittsburgh during that time. And that's why but the team was still so successful that they could still, you know, they could still look at that and be proud of being from Pittsburgh, even though they've moved to California or they've moved to Arizona or they've moved to, to, you know, to Florida or somewhere like that. Um, no, I'm from Pittsburgh. And, and that's something that's rare. You know, I, I didn't grow up in Pittsburgh, per se. I grew up in western Pennsylvania, but not Pittsburgh. Around here, if you're from like an eight county area, you're from Pittsburgh. Yeah. <laughs> You don't say you're from Beaver County or you're from Washington County or you're from you know Fayette or Westmoreland County. You or, just say, I'm, I'm or, from Pittsburgh. Well, you don't say you're from Cleveland. I can tell you that firsthand. <laughs> That's one thing you never say. But it, it, it's because of that football team. Sure. Because of that, hey, oh, you're from Pittsburgh. Oh, what about those Steelers? And everywhere you've, we've gone since then, you know, when Mike and I make the, the road trips all the time. And you go into a team hotel and there's there's – 600 to 1,000 Steeler fans in the hotel running around waiting to see these guys uh, show up. It's unbelievable. 
Some of them go to the bars at night too, Dale. Which you know, I've heard stories of that. I've heard that, tale of that as well. Yeah, <clears throat> but, you wearing know, jerseys back, from those guys from this from the seventies. Still, well, you still I, see the Lambert but, jerseys. You still see Bradshaw, yeah, Joe absolutely. Green. I traveled with get, the team in the seventies, um, and it was you know it was remarkable and pandemonium. And people had moved away, <laughs> but that's why even today, when eight ten thousand Steeler fans show up, they're not traveling from Pittsburgh. They're from the area closest to where, whether it's Dallas whether it's L.A., wherever they are, that's where they're coming from, Mike. Yeah, and, and, you know, getting back to Dale's point about the uh, eight-county area, I guarantee you back in the 70s, everybody had one of those black and gold tassel caps that, you know, where you would fold up the front and it would be yellow with the Steelers logo. Yeah, and then the little the top ball on the black, top. And, and the little <laughs> ball on the top. Those things were everywhere, man. And and the fans wanted to be attached to this so desperately i mean the kicker had a fan club jarella's gorillas <laughs> and there was lambert's lunatics and there was franco's italian army and there was the uh dobroshonka good ham fan club uh I, I, the water boy probably had one i mean it was just uh it was a cult it, it kind of still is a cult that it, you know in a way that a cult can be good it <laughs> i remember um they were playing a playoff game um, in, in Denver. This is a little bit later on. Remember that guy wore the hard hat with two beer cans on the side of yeah, the helmet yeah. and, and a straw? I <laughs> flew with him on a flight to Denver. I, I, you know, he wanted to strike up a conversation. I wasn't, and he was on there. He was on with the hat on. And I, I never couldn't forget, do that today. No, you couldn't do that today. You don't get on a flight that way. Um, and I remember before Super Bowl fourteen, uh, before I left Pittsburgh, and one of the downtown big buildings – um, somebody in their inside their office window put Knoll Bowl Four, um, and just the whole the whole city would just be just you know it, it just it just engulfed everything that you did. It, it really did. And it, again, to your initial point, um, at that point with in Pittsburgh, people needed something mm -hmm. to be proud about. They needed something to rally around because. You know, unemployment was 20 percent and inflation was through the roof and gas prices were, you know, we're rationing gas in the 70s. And and, uh, you know, it just it, it gave them something that they could be proud of and to be proud of being from Pittsburgh. You know, Pittsburgh still had that it still had that reputation around the country of a sooty, dirty city. And, you know, that, that gave people, you know, I'll never forget the the. Uh, you know, the, it's, I think it was in 79 after the Pirates also won the World Series. And it was the yep. city, the city of champions, champions. Sports Illustrated cover with with Willie Stargell. Bradshaw. And, and, yeah. yeah, I've got um, that. I've got that framed. It's it's my, on my den wall. It's one of my all. A matter of fact, um, when that picture came out, I was just so struck with it. Uh, I was talking about it on my talk show, which at that time was on uh, six to seven thirty. It was a I huge was. deal back then. Oh, to be yeah. on the cover of Sports Illustrated was massive. Absolutely. And then and, and, and then the inside was Stargell and Bradshaw in uniform with all those steel workers <laughs> surrounding him. Right. That's what I've got framed. Not the cover. I've got that picture. So I'm talking about it. And a guy calls in, and he's one of the steel workers in the picture. In the picture, he was sitting on the ground, sort of the Bradshaw's right. We had a conversation about it. That was uh, and I have it framed. It just, it just was so cool. It was the, probably it was, the last remaining steel mill in Pittsburgh at that right, point. <laughs> at that point, exactly. Yeah, at least was, the one was working. Um, somehow, I've, even now, when when television comes in to the, for Monday Night Football or something like that, 
somehow they find a working steel mill a lot of times when they when, I know. when they come to business. I don't know where they're getting these shots at, whether they're stock shots or what, because I don't even know. A lot know of where B-roll, this... Dale. <laughs> it's got to be. footage. It's got to yeah. be. Or something, you know. They might be importing it from China. As well. It could oh, be. Know. A it China steel mill. But, yeah, I mean, uh, that that's, you know. Having that title, the City of Champions, and winning those four championships in football in six years, again, that it was it was a sense of pride. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, with with, the, with the, the not just the the city, but the area. And again, so you didn't say, "Well, I'm from Beaver County." You said, "No, I'm from Pittsburgh." You didn't say, "I'm I, I'm from Greensburg." Where's that? No, I'm from Pittsburgh. That's that's where I'm. That's where I, I grew up at. And everybody says, "Oh, Steelers." Yeah, we we know that. We know the city. Well, it also uh, you know led to I think one of the. Uh, classic lines from Howard Cosell when he said, when you come to play Pittsburgh, you don't just have to play the team, <laughs> you have to play the whole city. And that's true today, um, not only with the Steelers, but you know the wild card game and any Penguin playoff game you come to, you're in for a rough ride. That's the way, that's just the way we are. Let's talk yeah, about, know, even- go ahead, Mike. I was going to say, even the years they didn't win ended up being memorable in those days. And uh, there's two of them that stand out to me in particular. Uh, One was 1973, which was the year after the Immaculate Reception. Now, they still haven't won a Super Bowl yet, but the feeling was kind of like, hey, that Franco thing was magic last year. We're the team of destiny and all that. And they end up losing three in a row late in the season, and they get beat by the Raiders uh, and uh, did not get uh, to the Super Bowl. But that was the year that Roy Blunt Jr. of Sports Illustrated followed the Steelers around all year and was given incredible access to the team. And he ended up writing a book called About Three Bricks Shy of a Load. Yeah. Now, for, for my money, this is one of the three finest books ever written about pro football. The other two, uh, one is a biography of Vince Lombardi by a guy named David Moranis called When Pride Still Mattered. And then one is fictional. It was written by Dan Jenkins. It's called Semi-Tough. Oh, but if you ha- <laughs> tremendous, <laughs> tremendous. If you haven't read about three bricks shy of a load, I used to take it to training camp with me every year and read it at camp. I did that for like my first 15 years. I started going to training camp in 1987. That gives you great insight into what was brewing for the 70s and what the history of the team was and how it was turning around and why. And then the other year that was remarkable was 1976. They had a million injuries. Tony Dungy ended up playing quarterback for them at one point. In Houston. But the, la- the last nine games of the season, they had five shutouts, and they gave up a combined 28 points. And I remember Dave Wanstead, he was the Cowboys' defensive coordinator when he was interviewing for the job that ultimately went to Bill Cowher in 1992. Wanstead talked about how he had that Steelers' 76 schedule up on the wall in his office in Dallas because that was the standard. If you want to be the best defense, you better do that. And it was, you know, it didn't matter who they didn't have on offense. Okay, we got to shut them out. We'll shut them out. Yeah, in the background, people remember that Terry Bradshaw um, got hurt in Cleveland, Turkey Joe Jones. Mike Kruzek, the backup from Boston College, a rookie, um, they had no choice but to run the ball, limited passing, Franco and Rocky each gained a thousand yards um, that year, and you're right, Mike. The defense was—it was just—it it was astounding. Uh, it was such a source of pride, and maybe morphing into this, I once asked Dan, of all the teams, you know, the four Super Bowl teams, what was the best? I always thought it was the '78 team because they combined 
Chuck let him go, the offense, the because offense, the rules the changed. Rules change, yeah. And, you know, God, they had Stallers and Swan, Jimmy Smith, people forget about him. Bradshaw was at his best. But Dan said 76 because of the defense. And, of course, they had the injuries in the playoff game in Oakland. Um, any thoughts about maybe not even a non-Super Bowl winning team, Mike, since you brought up 76? What might have been the best team from that decade? You know, I I, I like the sentiment. But to me, if you're going to be the best team, you better have won the championship. Um, you know, if you want to, if you run into a Penguins player from the early '90s, and you tell them the best team the Pens ever had was 1993, they'll quickly tell you, "Well, we won the cup in '91 and '92." Yeah. So no, like, I mean, the idea is to win the trophy, but those were certainly teams that uh, did everything but, and uh, it, it it leads us back to what we were talking about with Chuck Noll, what a great coach he was. Think of how they played early in the decade and then think of how they played late in the decade and how he wasn't just he wasn't married to one system or one style. He adapted with the times. He worked with what he had. You know, probably a lot of people might not remember that they had three starting quarterbacks in 1974, the first year they won the Super Bowl. It wasn't like Terry Bradshaw suddenly matured and he was this great player. They started him. They started Joe Gilliam and they started Terry Hanratty and they still ended up winning the Super Bowl. I mean, they. I don't know too many coaches that could do it in ways as differently as Noel did. Uh, the only one that really comes to mind to me is Joe Gibbs, who won three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks. Like I said, Chuck adapted when they changed the rules and said, look what I have. Uh, and he just yeah. opened it up, and they still had a running game. The best team to you, Dale? Probably 78, I think, because of that marriage of, of offense and defense. The defense was still – good enough that it was it was still a pretty good defense by 79 they had started to get a little long and tooth you'd see some of the names start kind of hanging on yeah yeah uh but the offense in 78 was was starting to come into its own so you had you know the marriage of both of those units where you know they they were they were pretty dominant uh, again a 14 and 2 team that uh, was their best record of the decade too and one game that they played they lost to the rams the game meant nothing to them yeah they started out seven and zero. the oilers beat them at three rivers on a Sunday night or a Monday. Well, there wasn't Sunday night back then. Monday night football. Um, I remember that and beat them soundly. But, of course, you know, the Oilers pay the ultimate price, as they did seemingly every year um, <laughs> at the end of the year. I want to go back to uh, something that Joe Green said, that it was Franco that was the missing piece. Um, a lot of moving parts there. You had the great draft of 74 was Franco the missing piece? Well, I know Joe Green said at one point uh, we didn't win bleep till we got Franco Harris. Uh, I True. think most, I think most, if not all, people. I'm certainly among them. Joe Green's the greatest stealer ever, but to me, Franco's number two. You know, I think when you look at it, Stan, um, he led the team in rushing twelve consecutive years. That's ridiculously hard to do i don't care what level of football you're doing people talk about now that oh you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't draft a running back in the first round he led your team in rushing 12 consecutive years you won four super bowls with that guy you didn't win any before that so yeah he was a big part of it and I, i'm with mike i think he belongs in you know certainly you know if, if not in the top two he's certainly in the top three or four uh, and, and I can understand Joe Green saying that, you know, there's a reason why when the Steelers drafted Najee Harris this year that you saw on social media, some of the defensive guys come out and say, oh, this is great. 
if you're getting five to ten fewer plays snaps per game on defense because this running back is and, and back in the 70s that was certainly the case because everybody ran the football that's a big deal uh and so your your defense is is fresher it allows them to play harder and and, and go full speed 100 percent of the time and they knew that he was going to be there he was remarkably durable too yeah, it's. I mean, you you can't argue the numbers and and what he meant, and and still, um, even when they went to a more of a passing game, beginning in '77 and '78, um, you know, he he was still you know a factor. One of the things that always struck me about those teams and their ability to run the ball, and they did it on necessity in '76. They started one and four. I'll never forget the shock of that. Uh, I was in Minnesota. They played a Monday night game. That was loss number four. And it, it was like zombie land around there. <laughs> and then, you know, then, then they lose Bradshaw. But that offensive line, I don't th- think, I think may- maybe Larry Brown made a Pro Bowl. Um, but that offensive line was so unheralded, yet so incredibly effective running that trap offense, which suited Franco's game. And yes, you obviously had Mike Webster. He he was the exception, but that offensive line performed so brilliantly together. Uh, and you hardly ever hear guys mention Sam Davis or Moon Mullins or Gordon Gravel or yeah. Jim Clack, um, Larry Brown, John Kolb. Uh, they just you know, it was a classic example of five guys working together. Yeah, and they did the. Uh... Intimidation part two, once they got rolling, they were famous for uh, rolling up the sleeves in the cold weather games yeah. and coming out like, oh, it's it's five degrees and sleeting and we are in our element and you are in trouble. And we're going to run the ball right down your throat. That's what, the, you know, when people talk about, I, I think when uh, we saw uh, when uh, you see some different receivers retire in recent years and, and everybody says, was this guy a Hall of Famer? We saw it with Edelman recently. And people immediately will say, well, Lynn Swan's a Hall of Famer. They threw the ball 20 times a game, if that, 15 sometimes, you know. So, you know, it's a, it's a different ball game. So the, the game was really won up front. And the Steelers on the offensive and defensive line, even though that offensive line hasn't gotten the, the credit maybe it deserves, were, were as good as, if not better, than anybody else up front. And, you know, switching to you're talking about, you know, Guys who made the team, you know, there were so many. I mean, there's nine Hall of Famers, including the head coach from that group. Um, obviously, uh, on defense, Joe Green, uh, I, I totally agree. In fact, Mike was uh, contacted me once a couple of years ago, and he said, list the greatest 20 Steelers. I did that, and you never used it. So it's still there for you if you ever want to do that. Uh, but I look at Mel Blunt after Joe Green as perhaps – and again, we're talking about Jack Cam and Jack Lambert. Uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, great players. Mike Wagner, I think, is vastly underrated yeah. as a player. Elsie Greenwood, Dwight White. But Mel Blunt also, I think, was almost was the equivalent of Franco on offense because of what he allowed the Steelers to do. Well, they changed the rules for Mel Blunt, so yep. that's a pretty good argument. Uh I got a I got a hard time putting him ahead of Jack Ham, but I got a hard time putting him uh, in in front of Mel Blunt. I got a hard time putting Ham in front of Mel Blunt too. So I think it's you know neck and neck right there for number three. Jack Ham was just a, an exquisite player, and uh, boy, the he played all three downs too. Can you believe that? Shocking, <laughs> yeah. shocking. 
Uh, you know, you Woody st- Woodenhofer said he graded higher than anybody on the team. When he graded tape, he graded higher than anybody on the defense, yeah. always. Always in the right spot, yeah. always made yeah. the plays. Great tackler. Yeah. Um, you know, with with uh, you know, the, the only thing that team didn't have was a nickelback because they didn't need one. They had eleven guys <laughs> who could play. You know, we had we had JT out. Thomas on a couple of summer ago, ago out of training camp, and we were talking with JT about that, and he said we had like three defenses that we ran. We're just so much better than everybody else. We'd run the same run the same thing again, run it again. There was no subbing guys in and out. There was it was just okay. We're we're just better than you. And our guys up front are going to win, and, the, and it made life easy on the cornerbacks. But the cornerbacks were really good, too. And, oh, by the way, you had two great safeties over the top. It, the linebacker group was I – mean, it was just – maybe – you could make you could certainly make the argument that it's the greatest – I know people want to talk about the Bears or the Ravens. Those 70 Steelers teams were the best defenses of yeah. all time. No yeah. doubt. And it just – coming into three rivers, uh, I once asked Joe Green, he said – I asked him, did, did, did you intimidate other teams? And he said, well, they weren't physically afraid of us. He said, but we'd go out on that carpet and we'd start warming up and you'd look at the other end of the field and you just look at them and they'd look at them you know, across the field. And Joe said, they knew. They were in for a real rough ride. It was going to be a long day. Absolutely. They played with a swagger. Um, they played with a joie de vivre. Dwight White, you know, doing his Billy White Shoes Johnson imitation. Um, oh, they, they, they were something. They were something. Um, four Super Bowls in six years and did it with panache in their own Steelers, Western Pennsylvania kind of way. The Steelers were the team of the decade. As a matter of fact, one of the NFL films was entitled with John <laughs> Facenda, Team of the Decade. But there were some really good teams that they had to deal with. Um, the Oakland Raiders, the Houston Oilers, the Dallas Cowboys, you know, teams like that. Um, nine Hall of Famers, okay, but how were they able to you know, navigate? Uh, it's, it's not like now. You know, now maybe the you know one team, two team. Now there's four or five, or then there's four or five you got to deal with. Yeah, you know, and back then too, everybody would have. You know, the Broncos had a little run there. The the yeah. Vikings were were you know a force in the NFC as well. And yet the Steelers were the team that that rose to, rose to the top of all that. Uh, I remember writing a column back in 2004 when the Steelers lost to the Patriots in the in the AFC Championship that. Maybe now Steeler fans could look at that. You know what happened in the seventies. To you know, if you're if you're an Oakland Raiders fan, you hate the Steelers of the seventies. They, I mean, they had a bunch of Hall of Famers too, and they couldn't get past the Steelers on a consistent basis. There was kind of that same symmetry there between the Steelers and Patriots early in the in the in the, in the two thousands. That you know, it, it's. It's frustrating, I think, for fans that like, hey, we got a really good football team here, but we can't beat those guys. And so, you know, the Steelers were a, a well-oiled machine that that you know they may you know they had the Hall of Famers, but it was also the pieces around the Hall of Famers that that made it work. It, you you can have great players, individual players, but it takes a team, I think, to win, and and that's what they did. Yeah, at least the Raiders broke through and won a Super Bowl. That uh, that '76 team. Uh, the Houston Oilers are telling oh. the Raiders to hold hold their beer in terms of being frustrated. <laughs> they're going to kick the door, I mean, in, Mike. Kick the door down. <laughs> you know, there there might still be a Houston Oilers if they didn't have to go to Three River Stadium for a couple of <laughs> playoff games because 
that was a really good outfit that Bum Phillips had. It just wasn't quite good enough. And then that one call on the Mike Renfro pass into the end zone, did they get it right? Did they get it wrong? Did they get a break? Did the Oilers get uh, the short end of the stick? Yeah, it happened like it happened. But, uh, you know, it, it's it's tough when you're the second best team of your era and you have to keep playing the first best team of your era. Yeah, nobody remembers number two. Well, I know Dan Pastorini wouldn't have anywhere near as many aches and pains if he never <laughs> if he never had to play the Steelers and Bum Phillips kicked the door down. He, you know, they, they were really good teams. They could never quite do it. The, the thing that struck me about that team is that – there were some different people. I mean, Andy Russell retired after the loss in Oakland. And, you know, Robin Cole came in. And, uh, you know, Diff- Ron Johnson, you know, came in. But the core group never lost its hunger for winning. Yeah. When you you see a team that is dominant, um, sometimes, okay, you know, we, we won. We were kind of happy with that. The more winning begats winning. The more those players won, the more they wanted to win. Yeah, you wanted to go out on top. You you know, you you're at the top of the mountain and again, you're you're the bully uh at the top of the mountain. You don't want somebody else to come in and knock you off of there and become the bully. And so, you know, you didn't really, see, you know, that, that 79 Super Bowl, um, you know, as Mike mentioned in a previous segment, the, you know, the Steelers were just kind of holding on there defensively. You know, Joe Green, Mel Blunt, uh some of these guys were getting up in age. Uh, but they were still good enough to to get the job done on on a consistent basis uh, because the offense had had you know picked up its game as well. Uh, the, one of the stats that, that just is amazing to me, and that's seventy nine team. They turned the football over themselves. I think it was forty eight times that year on offense. Wow. But yet they were still able to overcome that because they forced so many of their <laughs> defense. Three a game. Yeah, I mean it was a, again a different era. But you know they had games that year. I'm, I'm looking here at the stats. They had an eight turnover game against the Chargers, and obviously they lost that one. But they forced four turnovers. There were 12 turnovers in the football game. It was a Sunday night game. I was there. It was a long flight back. I'll I can bet. tell you that. I'll bet. Uh, you know they had some other games. Where, you know they had. Uh, I'm looking at like. They had a game against the Bengals that they lost. They turned the ball over nine times. I mean, that's 17 turnovers in two games. And they, of course, they lost both of those games, but there were other games here. They had five or six, four turnover games. You're not supposed to win those games, <laughs> but they did because they were so good. They just, they were able to overcome things like that. Mike, how much? You know, the you, other cool, go ahead. Uh, go, I was going to say the other cool thing about that team was the personalities and how they just let it rip. You know, it, I, I just. Shake my head when people of this era get upset about Twitter and TikTok and these things. Uh, they had a guy named Ernie Holmes who had an arrow shaved <laughs> into his head and became known as Ernie Arrowhead Holmes. Elsie uh, Greenwood wore the gold shoes, you know, different from everybody else. Oh, my God. What's going on here? Swan uh, and Stallworth Frenchy- were known to, to celebrate a touchdown or two as well. Yeah. Uh, once in a while, yeah, choreographed, <laughs> celebrating. Uh, Frenchy Fuqua used to wear capes. And I think he had, was he the guy that had uh, the high, goldfish. high heel shoes, shoes with yeah. goldfish in them? Yeah, yep. I mean, come on. That's, how could they have won despite all that distraction? Oh, my God. They, they must have been supermen. <laughs> You know, you had you know Lambert with his personality. He wasn't shy about. Uh, I'll ne- you know, I'll never, I'll never forget. This was after the assault game in 1976. 
the George Atkinson, Lynn Swan thing, and the trial in the offseason. And Dallas came to Three Rivers, excuse me, the Raiders came to Three Rivers the following season. And I remember interviewing Jack the week of that game, and I was talking to him. He's sitting there smoking a butt, uh, uh, you know, a dart. And, you know, a lot of them did back then. And I was asking about, you know, Otis Sistrunk, and, you know, there was a lineup of killers. You know, their team photo was taken in the post office on a, hanging on the wall. They had, you know, had some bad dudes on that team. And I interviewed Lambert about these guys coming in and what happened in the playoff game in 76. And he looked at me and he growled and he said, we don't exactly have 40 angels in here either. You know, there's some, there was some, you know, Glenn Edwards was still around. You know, he was an assassin. Um, talk about the hunger factor, Mike. How much of that do you think was Chuck? I mean, it was the personalities of the players. But Chuck, they didn't always win, but he, he kept them focused. And, and they were as hungry in 79 as they might have been before they won the first one. Yeah, and I think um, I'm drawing a blank here on uh, the name of the author who just wrote the Chuck Knoll book recently. That was very good, too, uh, yeah. I I apologize for that because it's a great piece of work. But uh, one of the themes in that is how to Knoll, it wasn't winning the championship. It was the doing. You know, he he wanted to do all the things you had to do to win the championship. That was the challenge. It wasn't – it it, it was the means to him, not the end. And and didn't he also say, Stan, at one point that uh, the altar boys should be in church on Sunday? Getting, getting back to that. <laughs> getting back to that. We don't exactly have forty angels or uh, yeah. forty uh, angels in our locker room either. But uh, or if boy, he scored was, a late touchdown, uh, people you talk about you know him um, piling on. Um, he said, "I didn't see any white flags out there." He wasn't apologizing yeah. for scoring a late touchdown. But to your point, I think he had a maniacal desire to do it as well as it could be done every Sunday. By the way, Michael McCambridge is the guy there who is, uh, there you go. Was McC- yeah. I knew his name. I, something, yeah. Yeah, I, I apologize, Michael, because that, that's another fantastic book. Uh, I feel like a book of the month club here. Uh, but, yeah, uh, you know, Chuck Knoll was never satisfied. And uh, the other thing I remember about him is uh, George Perlis became the coach at Michigan State when I was an undergrad there. And uh, Perlis, of course, was on the defensive staff for those four Super Bowls. And I naturally kind of gravitated to him because I'd grown up a Steeler fan. And he showed me a picture he had in his office of the assistants in the locker room posing after one of the Super Bowl wins. And he said, what do you, what do you notice about that picture? I'm like, well, you know, a bunch of guys, whatever. There was, they hadn't been doused with champagne. Their hair wasn't all mussed up. They hadn't, uh, their shirts were tucked in. It, it's not like they'd been jumping around losing their mind because they won the Super Bowl. And, and Perla said that was because they expected to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know, talking to Dick Hoke, I said, what of the four championships was the most, and well, he was around for six. Yeah. What was the most special? And he said, 79, because Bud Carson was with the Rams. And a lot of people were saying, They'll, they'll not be able to win. Bud Carson's gone now. Lionel Taylor was gone. He was with the Rams, too. That was sweet to them. Uh, last thing I wanted to ask, guys, uh, throw your thoughts in. Um, everybody understands the foundational legacy of the 70s. Do you think that that legacy is still part of the Steelers' persona in 2021? I mean, is there still that awareness? I mean, these players weren't born then. Um, Mike Tomlin was born. Um, he was 
two or three when they won their first Super Bowl. Um, do you think that that legacy still exists? I do. I mean, you know, every day when those players walk into the facility, uh, when you go upstairs at, at the UPMC Rooney Sports Complex, the six Super Bowl trophies are sitting there. And right across the hall from them are all the Super Bowl teams, the photos of the Super Bowl team. So it's real easy. And I think the Steelers do a really good job as well uh, of of informing uh, young players of of who was there before them, because you go back into the, into the into the offices back there, and you'll see the great defensive backs, photos of all the great defensive backs in history, in team history, photos of all the great uh, defensive linemen in team history, linebackers, all the different positions are all represented there, and so I, I think if you don't have an understanding of that when you arrive. You'll certainly have an understanding of that after a couple of weeks. Just walk. It's like a museum for football. It's like going to the Hall of Fame where you can walk around and go, wow, yeah, these guys, these guys did a lot. And there aren't many teams that can, you know, there just aren't many teams that can do that uh, and take you back through history like that. You heard it with Najee Harris again when, when, when he was drafted, talking about the, the legacy of Steeler running backs here, starting with Franco Harris. He could have gone back farther to John Henry Johnson and guys of that nature, Bullet Bill Dudley. But, um, I, I do think there's a uh, there is a carryover from that. You know, they feel the I don't know if it's pressure, but it's certainly something a vibe that they feel that, 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 that there's a, a an expectation of winning. Yeah, I think the guys they just drafted have no idea about the 70s and probably a lot of guys in their locker room don't. But Mike Tomlin certainly does. And he uh, I think he takes great responsibility in trying to add to that even more than he already has. And uh, the fan base certainly loves it because, as we all, as we all know, the only championships that matter are six Super Bowls. You know what the Packers and Bears did in the '60s and the '50s and the '40s doesn't really count. Uh, the, you know, Stairway to Seven has a real nice ring to it. I, I think it. I think it's Stan, not just part of the persona. The fr- I think it's the identity of the franchise. You know, it's it's uh, <clears throat> it's interesting um, about mentioning the fan base as, as we wrap up. Uh, I once interviewed Dan Rooney about the Steelers are part of the fabric of this community, um, and they feed off one another. Uh, and I asked Dan, you know, why do you think that is? And he said, because people, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's a fairly accurate quote, people here know the game. He said, if you grow up around western Pennsylvania, if you're not playing football, you better be a cheerleader in the band. You, the, the people here know the game, and you can't fool them. And so they, the Steelers, have always felt accountable to the fan base because they're not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. They're, they're, they don't have cheerleaders and mascots. And no. all these, it's football. You, you know, you're not seeing Sir Purr running around on the field and jumping on live balls as we saw one time down in Jacksonville. Is that right? Is that the right one, or is that Jackson DeVille, Mike? Oh, you got me. I think it was Sir Purr that jumped on a live football one time because yes. the mascot was on. They don't I need all that. Right. You don't need, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the shooting hot dogs into the stands and things of that nature. People are there to see the football game. They want to see the Steelers and they want to see the Steelers win. That's what they're there for. Well, guys, this was terrific. Um, thanks so much for your input. Dale Lolly, Mike Prezuda, WDVE. 
and the Steelers Radio Network. Uh, I'm Stan Saverin of uh, ESPN Pittsburgh and whoever will give me a job. Uh, <laughs> and the Steelers Radio Network on the postgame shows. Uh, it's been our pleasure to just talk about and hopefully uh, encourage you to think of some favorite memories of yours in the dynasty years of the 1970s. For everybody involved, thanks for listening to us here on SNR and the Steelers platforms.